0: So now that we've all been on that mountain with Jesus, let us hear the word again from Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I became a runner in college. Now, my family will tell you that I use that term runner loosely. A sorority friend of mine convinced me to start running with her, and I don't know whose idea it was, since neither of us could conceive of running even one mile, much less six miles. But somehow, we decided to sign up for a 10K. It was the Cooper River Bridge Run in Charleston, South Carolina. So we started training, slowly building up our endurance, first one mile, then two and three. And we got to the race, um, and we were very excited that morning of. We had no idea what to expect. This was our first race, but we were a little nervous, because in our training, neither of us had actually run the whole six miles. And so we were just hoping we could finish the race. We anticipated that the last couple of miles might be hard, but we were excited. We were pumped up, ready to go. We thought it was so neat to get our runner's number and pin it to our T-shirts and tie on those um, timers to our shoes. And I got to tell you, I felt like I was a pretty legit runner. So the gun goes off, and thousands of us crammed on this running um, street, we were shuffling across the starting line and I was feeling good. So I do fine through mile three. Then, halfway through mile four, I get a cramp in my side. And let's just say by mile five, I'm wondering why I agreed to do this in the first place and I'm vowing I will never do it again. Because did I mention that there was a bridge that had a hill? Thankfully, I did get to the top of that hill. But I didn't think I was going to be able to run anymore when all of a sudden I realized that there were people all along um, down on the streets and they were yelling, you got this, it's downhill and it's just a little bit farther. And sure enough, as I get to the top of that bridge and can look across, I see a glimpse of that finish line, even though it looked like 10 more miles away, but I saw the end And I became determined to get there. It's amazing what your body can do when you think it's past exhaustion. I sprinted that last 0.2 miles across the finish line because there were people cheering, there was music playing, an announcer was calling my name, and it was this exhilarating chariots of fire moment of glory for me. I really, I saw myself in slow-mo, you know, going across that finish line. But then immediately after crossing that finish line, I went to a bathroom and tossed my cookies. Not my finest moment. Well, fast forward two years later, and I've signed up to do another 10K. I have the same fears about finishing, and I remembered very clearly how hard it had been for me to run the last two miles of my previous race. So why am I doing this again? Because... All the mundane, ordinary running I had been doing from week to week, you know, putting in those miles day in or, well, week in, week out, didn't compare to the glory of finishing a race. I remembered the exhilaration, and I had a vision of myself crossing that finish line. That picture of glory is what helped me when my lungs and my muscles started hurting on the morning of June 13th, 2007, I became a mother. My firstborn daughter, Allison, was born at 10 10 a.m. after a short but painful labor. And I'm not going to lie, I didn't want to have any anesthesia and it was pretty painful. But the moment that she was laid on my chest, oh, glory. And not just this tiny, beautiful life in my arms, but me, too. Because in that moment, I knew that life was going to change drastically and that I was going to change, that I was going to become someone different. Fast forward almost two years later, and I've signed up to do it again, except this time, twins! Turns out, I found out that Being a mother is the hardest job I have ever had in my life. So why am I doing it again? And it's because I had had a glimpse of glory. A glimpse of glory. And I know that Jesus is continuing to shape me more and more like him as I grow as a mother. Well, the story of the Transfiguration, it's sort of a strange one, isn't it? I confess I didn't really think much about this story before I was given this text to preach. But I've been studying and reflecting on what it means. And I've concluded that the story gives us great hope. And I've come up with three reasons why this story is something that we need. A story that gives us hope. And the first reason is that Jesus wants to show us the fullness of his glory and remind us that we too will be glorious one day. Hope. Yes, we still live in a world marked by sin. Yes, we still struggle. But who we are today is not who we will be in the future. Or at least I hope not. Jesus wants to transfigure us. He wants to change what we look like day by day. That's a, There's a fancy theological word for that. That's called sanctification. We're being changed and made more holy here on earth. And then the other word, glorification, is what we will be like when we are in heaven, where there will be no more sin, no more sadness, and we will be fully like Christ Glorified. Theologian Thomas Curry writes To be a human being is to be a glory bearing, glory reflecting, glory bound creature. That is surely the meaning of such transfiguring glory, and he means the transfiguration of Jesus. To see in its brightness an anticipation of the glory of the risen Lord, and to find in him the destiny of of every ordinary life. Yes, you and I have ordinary lives, but we are destined for glory. Just as I had this glimpse of my glorious runner self and a glimpse of the fullness of love at becoming a mother and all that I could become as a mother, Jesus gives us a glimpse of himself in all his glory. And we say, that is where we're going That is who we are coming to look like. That's who we are becoming. And thank God that because I am not all who I want to be right now, I can trust that God is changing me and wants to change me. I have a vision for that, and I have hope. We need a vision of the glory of Jesus to see who we will become. But secondly, we need this vision Because the way of Christ's glory is through suffering. Through suffering. And this, my friends, is a message of hope. The story of the Transfiguration is placed on purpose in the church calendar on this Sunday, the Sunday before Lent begins. Lent, it's a season in which we reflect on Jesus' suffering and death, and where we too are called to die with Christ. Now, six days before this story occurs in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus takes Peter and John, I'm sorry, Jesus is speaking with his disciples, and he has told them that if they want to be his followers, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Now, they don't really completely know what that means. And then six days later, he takes Peter and John up on this mountain, and before their very eyes, His clothes turn white and dazzling. Um, He is in his full glory. But as they go down the mountain, Jesus brings up this topic again in verse 9. He says, As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning What this rising from the dead could mean. Now, picture this. Peter and John, they're terrified of the vision they've just seen. God in the fullness of his glory. It must have been awesome and terrifying. They didn't know what to say. And so Peter kind of fumbles. I'll build a house for each one of you. And then Jesus mentions something about rising from the dead. And they think, what in the world is he talking about? Because to rise from the dead, you have to first die. And that's the point. Glory and suffering go together. Jesus didn't stay on the mountain. No, he didn't let his disciples build a house for him up there either. He came down first and set his feet and his face toward the cross. Jesus shared in our mortality and suffering so that we too could share in his glory. Suffering is inescapable. And in fact, I would say it is necessary. It's the mystery of death that leads to life. There is a type of dying that we choose, like choosing to give childbirth or choosing to train for a marathon or a 10K. And that pain leads to glory. But there's another type of dying that just happens to us. But both of these means are which are by which we are changing from one glory to another, as the Apostle Paul says. Suffering and pain are what cause us to change and grow. Now all of us want to avoid it. We hate seeing our kids suffer. If I could, I would try to shield them from all the pain and suffering in their own lives personally. I would shield them from their mistakes, their failures. It pains me when I see them skin their knees or have a broken heart. But I know that I cannot protect them from that pain because it's necessary to learn and to grow. Now, God doesn't cause suffering to teach us a lesson. He doesn't say that there's a reason for your suffering, therefore you must suffer. But I can guarantee you that all suffering will be redeemed. It won't be wasted. Just like Christ's self-giving sacrificial love was fully displayed on the cross, God redeemed it and turned it into ultimate display of his glory. Our suffering and sorrow will be turned into grace and glory. I've got to admit that I've had a pretty hard week. A couple weeks ago, I was in a car accident, and Thank the Lord everyone's safe and fine, but my car is in the shop, and they've had um, a few things come up with it, so it's going to be an inconvenience for me, honestly, and um, it's just been one thing after another to deal with. And then this week, just I've had some events that have broken my heart. Um, I've lost sleep and tears, and I have um, cried out to God, God, why? There's just some real pain um, that we're dealing with in our family. Now, I know some of these are first-world problems. They're minor compared to the devastation and pain that many in this world are going through. Refugees who've lost everything fleeing their countries. North Koreans who can't leave their country and yet are living in extreme poverty and starvation. The millions of children who are trapped in modern-day slavery. And yes, I said millions. And triple those millions, and you'll have the number of youth and adults who suffer from major depression, just here in the United States. But I've got to believe that the same hope that is offered to me in my suffering, that hope that my suffering and pain will be redeemed for glory, is the same that will be for all who are suffering in the world. God cares about our suffering, and he cares about our pain, and he sees it. That should give us hope. Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, In the universe we inhabit, there will always be suffering. This should not discourage us. It should simply allow us to see suffering and our role in decreasing it differently. In our universe, suffering is often how we grow, especially how we grow. Emotionally, spiritually, and moral. morally. That is, when we let the suffering ennoble us and not embitter us. The texture of the suffering is changed when we see it and begin to experience it as being redemptive and not being wasted as not being senseless. And he also says of Nelson Mandela that Nelson Mandela's 27 years spent in prison were what changed him and made him the humble man and leader of forgiveness that he was. Mandela's suffering in prison was redeemed when he helped end apartheid. Friends, that should give us hope that God is a God who can redeem our suffering and our pain, and he even uses it to change us. Thirdly, we have hope because of this transfiguration story. Because we are reminded in the story that Jesus is always with us. In the Exodus text that we heard, Moses wanted to see God's glory. But it wasn't just his glory that he was asking for. The very beginning of the text, what he asked of God was for his presence to be with them. And he said, God, if you don't go with us, don't let us leave from this place. And the truth of it is, God never leaves us. In this story of the transfiguration, when Jesus was shown in his full glory, and Elijah and Moses appeared, and the disciples were afraid, all of a sudden, it says that they were alone with Jesus, and it was just him. Suddenly they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. Jesus is with us in our pain, in our suffering. He does not leave us alone. We are joined to him. There's something very poignant about Ash Wednesday, which is coming up. This service is one of my favorite services in the church, because in this service, we rehearse this truth, this truth of who we are, that we are dust and ashes, that we are broken and sinful people. We rehearse the truth that because of that sin, we will one day die. We are mortal. But simultaneously, as those ashes are pressed into our forehead, they are pressed into the shape of a cross. We are marked by the cross. And that is to remind us that though we are mortal, though we will experience suffering and brokenness and pain in our life, we are not alone God is with us every step of the way. We are marked as his own, and we are his beloved. No matter what suffering and denial and death we go through, Christ joins himself in our sufferings, and we are joined into his glory. When else did that happen? When else did Jesus hear those words, this is my beloved? That was at Jesus' baptism when the heavens opened up and God said, this is my beloved son. And again, at the transfiguration, we are reminded of his identity as God's beloved son. And that same is, truth is true of us, that we are now part of this family, adopted into the family, and we too are the beloved of God. Jesus doesn't leave us to go into the world alone. He is with us. As I close this morning, I want to close with a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that is used on this day, Transfiguration Sunday. And it points us to this hope of seeing Christ's glory, which gives us this vision of who we're going to be, that even in the midst of our suffering, Jesus will be with us changing us day by day into his likeness. And so as I close, let's close with this prayer. Will you pray with me? O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross, and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.